Hello and welcome to the Bang to Rights podcast. My name is Pete Murray. I'm a lecturer in multimedia journalism here at MMU. I'm joined as usual by my colleagues Dave Porter. Hello, Dave. Hi, Pete. I'm by Jeremy Craddock. Hi, Jez. Hi, Pete. So, um, and hello to you for, for listening. Thanks very much for downloading. In this episode, we're going to be looking at an issue which all of us, I'm sure, have encountered at various times in our career as journalists and which I'm certain most of our students will have to grapple with at some point in their professional lives. And that's maintaining the confidentiality of their sources. It's something that we deal with in theory, I guess, during the media law regulation lectures, but it's a very practical live issue. There are some particular technological issues about data protection, surveillance, mobile phone tracking, which we'll have a look at in later editions, I'm sure. But for today, it's a specific ethical question which journalists have actually faced for many generations about not revealing the names of people who give them confidential information. We'll come to the details of that in just a moment, but first, Jez, what have you been looking at? What's what's on your news agenda for this week? Yes, Pete. Um, this week, uh, what caught my eye actually was a report that um, Ipso, uh, I think, are going to be holding discussions with a with a new feminist group, uh, Level Up. I don't know if you saw this one. No, I haven't um, seen this. This group, um, they're seeking new guidelines on the way that. Um, newspapers report domestic violence cases um, and they're also wanting Ipso to, to include a new clause in the editor's code, code of practice relating to the way domestic violence is uh, reported and they, they basically want um, newspapers to focus on the perpetrator of the crime rather than talking about the, the kind of triggers or the what might have provoked or deemed to have provoked the domestic violence incident um, and they've cited some examples of uh, coverage where headlines have talked about how um, a murdered wife actually jibed, uh, jibed her husband and sort of mm-hmm. provoked her husband with comments which provoked him to kill her. Um, there was also some talk about the way that certain newspapers had covered this particular case and they'd used photographs of the the murdered wife wearing her bikini, things like that, and they're just feeling that it's um, irresponsible. Uh, it's certainly an really. issue that's been going on for some time, isn't it? About the way that uh, that some newspapers report things to, kind of to the detriment of the yes. victim, undermining yeah. their case. And I suppose what they're seeking is is what happened ten, twelve years ago when the the clause about uh, reporting of suicide was introduced mm. as well. I suppose they're trying to get a similar thing on domestic violence. Yeah, because that, that, that discussion, that argument, that debate about reporting of suicide, that's kind of been won really now, hasn't yes, it? It's pretty much settled, absolutely, yeah. But they're seeking as part of, uh, you know, the, the new guidelines that all all reports of domestic violence cases w- would have um, a helpline at the end of it as well, you know, for potential victims of domestic, interesting, uh, interesting, domestic yeah. violence. So yeah. it'll be interesting to see how Ipso play that one and whether they, you know, act upon it. Yeah, yeah. So let's wait and see. We'll hopefully be able to return to that as and yes. when Ipso makes some some uh, decision on it. So, yeah. yeah, Dave, anything you've that's caught your eye this week? Yeah, just a, a little piece on another front page, Pete, about defamation and uh, a ruling from Justice Warby uh, in a soup sorry, Sub versus the Express Papers, and it, it's about a family of a, a French family. Um, 
who came to live in the UK, family of eight, and the story went viral after they told the local paper they wanted a bigger house, effectively, you know, uh, and it led to, um, you know, lots of celebrities' headlines and lots of readers' comments, um, as you can imagine, mainly negative, and um, what happened was, of course, the... Um, I think four legal um, legal writs were sued for, for defamation. Um, and what Judge what Justice Ward was looking at was whether, in fact, um, whether cumulatively the four separate articles could add up to uh, defamation in the sense of reaching the serious uh, harm threshold, which, as we know, students know defamation, each uh, publication, each article has to reach that threshold. Yeah. He said, actually, individually, uh, neither of them did. Uh, and I think the, the the case for the, the family was that uh, cumulatively um, it, it, it touched that. So interesting so case. It wasn't uh, cumulative within one article. No, uh, right? the argument was about whether different articles yes, amounted to yes. a defamation. Which mm-hmm. uh, you know, unless I've misread it, but it seems to be that case. Uh, and mm-hmm. you know, in fact, just Justice Warby uh, looked at this and came down on the side of the effectively each. Uh, publication must be considered on its merits and its imputations and we cannot have cumulative uh, defamation suits uh, I mean it's interesting you know the, the whole idea of each publication could trigger a fresh libel yeah, action so which is a well known principle mm. yeah, yeah but it's interesting the way that maybe some cases are, are put forward and um, you know I suppose in a way you could think of Chris Jeffries he was mm, yeah. subject to many uh, defamatory articles, although having said that, they were clearly defamatory in each case, mm. uh, for example, with the mirror, etc. So uh, I think an important principle uh, just reinforced there by, by Justice Warby. Yeah, mm. yeah, good, good, interesting. And for me, I, I wanted to mention a case that came up in, in Scotland, actually, different jurisdiction, but came up in, in Scotland last week. Because while we were recording last week's podcast at the law school courtroom, we got into a discussion, one of the students asked me about the differences between Scots law and the law in England and Wales and then in Northern Ireland as well, where one of our students comes from. Now, I talked about the Procurator Fiscal Service, the difference between magistrates' courts, sheriff courts um, in, in Scotland. One thing I didn't actually mention is something that comes up quite a lot. It's the not proven verdict that exists in Scots law. Um, not proven, it's an acquittal verdict um, in which the jury says that the Crown has not proved the case against the accused person. Now, that, t- that term actually dates back to the days when Scots law provided for two verdicts, proven and not proven. Um, but now that they're, they're more widely used, guilty and not gu- guilty verdicts, this not proven thing is kind of third way, if you like. It's regarded by critics as, as an acquittal, which kind of retains an element of suspicion mm. against mm. The, the accused person. So there's been a campaign to, kind of, to try and abolish the not proven verdict for serious offences. Um, and it's, it's, it's still, there is a discussion going on at the very high, highest reaches of, of the, the Scottish legal establishment about what should happen to it. But it came to the fore again in the case of a, the student, um, Stephen Coxon, who's originally from Bury, from this neck of the woods. He was prosecuted in 2015 for raping a fellow student two years previously when they were both at St Andrews University. He was acquitted on a not proven verdict, but his victim took him to court in a landmark civil action where, of course, the burden of proof is different. It's on the balance of probabilities. It's the first time in many years where someone who'd been acquitted in a criminal trial has been successfully sued for civil damages. Sheriff Robert Weir QC found Stephen Coxon had taken advantage of the victim, who was named in court only as Miss M, because the effects of alcohol meant she was incapable of giving meaningful consent. She's now been awarded 80 
£100,000 in damages. And since the verdict, campaigners have pointed out that nearly 30% of acquittals in rape and attempted rape cases are found to be not proven. And that compares with around about half of that number, half of that proportion, rather, for, for all crimes and offences. Um, it's not something that we deal with in, in our mm. classes here, but mm. um, what, what about that? It, you know, do you, is that, yeah, I, that, I that difference between a kind of criminal conviction or criminal acquittal and then a, a civil burden of proof? Well, I think mm. at the end, Pete, you, you mentioned some figures there. Uh, and I was reading in The Guardian a, week, a couple of weeks ago about... Um, an investigation into rape trials uh, and convictions, and an alarmingly low number of convictions for of Jews convicted under uh, sort of twenty five, under twenty five year olds, thirty five year olds, mm -hmm. on the basis that Jews somehow feel a certain you know almost like a sympathy uh, for somebody who'd been convicted so early in their career, and were you know get a higher mm -hmm. conviction rate between thirty five and fifty five. Um, which is, makes for very interesting reading, uh, uh, maybe points to a certain mentality. But if that is the case, uh, and this last conviction of that age group, um, then maybe this is a backdoor route to moral justice, because I, I think here, Miss mm. M, as you say, uh, got £80,000 damages. I don't think she'll ever see any of that, but no. she has secured effectively a, a court, uh, court judgment in her favour. So uh, I'm wondering if this is you know, a, a circuitous route to, to achieving a similar outcome. Yeah, because um, various reports say that there are a number of similar cases that are being prepared mm. at the minute, mm -hmm. and certainly the, the Rape Crisis Centre in Scotland is, is backing them. One of the other interesting elements of this was that she got legal aid for this, which wouldn't uh -huh. usually be available for someone taking mm. a civil action like this. So, yeah. 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 So, um, well, yeah, so we'll come back to various news stories, I'm sure, um, and we may return to, to some of these later on. But let's move to that dilemma that I mentioned at the outset over the rights and wrongs of journalists protecting sources, even if in extreme cases it means not revealing the identity, in this case, of someone suspected of being behind one of the most notorious atrocities of the IRA's so-called mainland bombing campaign during the, the Northern Ireland Troubles. That dilemma was at the forefront of an ITV documentary earlier this month about the investigation by John Ware into who planted the bombs which killed 21 people in Birmingham in the mid-1970s. 44 years ago, Britain was at war with the IRA. In their deadliest attack on the mainland, 21 people were murdered in Birmingham after bombs exploded in two pubs. I think this is uh, murder, I think this is. Six Irishmen were wrongly convicted of mass murder. For 16 and a half years, we've been being used as political scapegoats. Since then, the police have investigated without success. I didn't do it. No, I didn't say you did. With a new inquest now opened, the relatives of the victims are still desperate for answers. What do I want? Me, personally, I want the bastards who killed my sister and the other 20 to be brought to justice, short and simple. Now, one of the starting points for John Weir's investigation was with the writer and the former MP, Chris Mullen, who'd written extensively on the issue and helped campaign for the release of those six men wrongly accused of the bombings. Chris Mullen says he's interviewed someone who is one of the likely bombers, but he won't reveal who that is. And that decision has angered bereaved relatives, such as Julie Hamilton, whose sister Maxine was killed in the bombings. Here's a key section from that ITV documentary where we hear first from John Weir's interview with Chris Mullen and then from Julie Hamilton. I gave 
repeated assurances, not only to the individual concerned, but to many innocent intermediaries uh, that I would not name names while they were alive. Uh, and I, haven't, I never have done, and I never will. This isn't uh, Cluedo. Uh, we're not playing a game here. We're talking about real life, real life and death issues. So, um, what's, what do we make of that? Who's, whose side are we on? Um, Chris Mullen? Julia Hamilton? It was, uh, having watched the documentary, it was, you know, as a journalist, it was very easy to align yourself with Chris Mullen and, and obviously the protection of sources is enshrined in the NUJ code of conduct. But then when you saw the interview, particularly at the very end when John Ware played uh, you know, footage to Julie Hamilton. Um, it's, it's very hard, isn't it, to to sort of uh, you sort of wrestle with your conscience really about that. But um, but I was thinking about um, a couple of examples where th this is where journalists have faced prison over revealing sources, and there was um, obviously Steve Panter at the MEN um, yeah. over the IRA bomber uh, in Manchester. Um, wouldn't reveal his sources. Yeah. Um, and the other one I was thinking of was, do you remember Bill Goodwin? Yes. Um, yeah. Of the engineer, yeah. wasn't it? Yes, that's right. Um, he went all the way to the European Court of Human Rights. He, he did, didn't he? Yeah, yeah uh, I think it was dragged out for about seven years, wasn't it? Although yeah. it, he didn't long, go to prison, case. did he, in the end, mm -hmm. I don't think. Yeah. Um, I think in that sort of case, it was it was relating to the uh, who had revealed uh, information about who'd given him some confidential documents. It was about a software company, wasn't yes, it? And, yeah, uh, yeah, they were about to go bust. I think that's right. Mm -hmm. And in some respects, when you weigh that against this example with the Chris Mullen, the, the, there's almost more moral pressure on. Chris Mullen, isn't there really? I think that, I mean, for me, that's really what it's at the heart of it. It's, it involves, yeah. you know, in, in the Bill Goodwin case, it involved, you know, the, the, the commercial viability of a company, mm. whereas in this case, we're talking about 21 people who were murdered in, in pubs in Birmingham. Yes. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. I, you know, I, picking up what Jess said about Julie Hamilton, you can feel from her point of view that she's been doubly let down by what she would consider the system, mm -hmm. uh, you know, with the inquest uh, not got, not considering allowing the uh, potential suspects mm -hmm. to be named, etc., or looked into. And then, of course, she would see, you know, the withholding by Chris Mulling of this name as another sort of, you know, uh, another hit to be taken. Uh, uh, and and I think actually sometimes the, the, the general public don't understand perhaps this mm. why there's this um, staunch unwillingness to reveal sources mm. uh, and uh, a sort of general you know misunderstanding of why and I understand completely mm. if if we don't then bang goes our reputation and, and lack of trust but yes. um, maybe I mean it's interesting actually that that of course John Ware did his own investigations from ultimately from clues being Chris Mullins' book. Yeah, uh, and, yeah. And I'm not uh, saying that Chris Mullins left him there, but uh, a great piece of investigative reporting. But I think you're right, Pete, it almost lifts it from an ethical to a moral stroke philosophical debate. Yeah. I mean, I'm just thinking as well, I can't remember the name, sorry, uh, of, of the journalist involved, but um, a few years ago there was one journalist who interviewed someone in prison who'd revealed that he'd uh, committed a murder. And I think in that case, 
actually much to the ire of many journalists in the profession generally and I think particularly the NUJ at the time he was condemned for going to the police and revealing this information yeah so yeah. and uh, there have been similar cases actually related to the, the troubles in Northern Ireland as well where mm. journalists have been speaking to people who are accused of um, you know serious offenses murder bombing shootings whatever um, and they've refused to reveal sources uh-huh. partly because they say their lives would be put at risk if they revealed yeah, yeah. who these people yeah. were because yeah. they you know they, they would get into serious trouble themselves and mm-hmm. so the courts have found yeah in their favour because so, it's at a risk yeah, to their life yeah. if they're, they're forced to reveal the source Su- even though the Suzanne PSNI Breen, yes Suzanne Breen being a, a classic case that, yeah. so uh, yeah. it's a much more pressing issue than we 90 journalists would face yeah mm. yeah in the UK anyway so yeah England, so it, it can literally be a matter of life and limb mm. for, for for many people but of course there is another side to the confidentiality debate um we and that's why we as journalists would want to keep of our some of our sources anonymous now it might come down to a threat a threat against your life or your family um but the issue you know some of the wider issues have come to the fore recently i made a debate about the the ethics of political lobby reporting particularly the most most prominent recent example that people might know about is the the New York Times op-ed article which was written by a White House White House insider who claimed that some of President Trump's staff were deliberately blocking some of uh, the president's more controversial policies. Now earlier today I was listening to the former editor of the Guardian Alan Rushbridger discussing this issue on the Talking Politics podcast. It's presented by David Runciman from the Politics Department at the University of Cambridge. Newspapers on a daily basis use anonymity because that way they can genuinely inform people more, better, because some people will say things that are true only if they can hide behind anonymity. So it, it's a sort of regular daily occurrence that you will tell people information that people will not put their names to. But in order for that to work, the reader has to believe that, that you're doing what you say and that you're not flamming it up. The senior cabinet source is a senior cabinet source and not somebody you've just invented. That's why newspapers will never abandon anonymity, nor, nor should they, in my view. But it has to be used sparingly and with integrity. That's Alan Rushbridger on the Talking Politics podcast, which comes out every Thursday morning on iTunes, Stitcher, Acast, and the usual podcast platforms. I definitely recommend it to, to listeners. It's, it's great stuff. It comes as a former colleague of mine who's on the executive of the Labour Party in Scotland, also a former journalist, by the way, also a former lobby journalist, had been talking about he refuses to give quotes to reporters anonymously because he thinks it detracts from the real thrust of the story. Now, in this case, he's not anonymous senior Labour Party source. He's called Stephen Lowe. He works for the trade union Unison. And he told me why he insists on using his name. If somebody phones up or gets in touch saying, oh, off the record, what's, what's happening? If I think that's they're just looking for a general mood... You know, how does the party feel about policy X? You know, was it right to sack Shadow Minister Y? If it's a sort of general mood they're looking for, quite happy to cooperate. Where I get concerned is I'll say, oh, well, you know, people aren't very happy about that, or, you know, there's a general feeling that people, that so and so overstepped the mark. And then that gets put in quotes as, and I find it amusing, you know, senior senior Labour insider says. And I, I find that quite disingenuous because if I've got something to say that I'm prepared to be used in direct quotes, as it were, in that sort of phraseology, I'll, I'll, I'll put my name to it. 
Uh, other than that, I think it's a bit dubious. Because but you, you, you are a senior Labour insider, though, aren't you? Well, there's, there's two things here. One is, uh, you could argue that I am. However, I've often seen it written up so that in context, it looks as though it's someone else. Mm-hmm. So that other people who are au fait with internal workings of the Labour Party will assume that it's not me, but in fact somebody who's uh, significantly more salient than I am. So that annoys me because it's there's a, a level of sort of not inherent but perhaps implied misrepresentation there that you know it doesn't look like it's me. It looks like it's an M, one of the MSPs or one of the MPs. That annoys me. But the other thing is, it's one thing, I think, to, you know, take soundings from four or five people, say, and then say, oh, you know, the left of the party are desperately unhappy or the the rest of the left of the party are delighted or, you know, grassroots figures approve of this or don't. It's a very different thing to use specific phrases and words, you know, X should be sacked. Uh, this place is a joke. Uh, to, to give you an example, I, I, I see there was a BBC Scottish correspondent. Uh, we had a ministerial, uh, we had a shadow cabinet reshuffle up here last week, mm-hmm. and a BBC correspondent tweeted text from senior Labour politician, the Labour Party in Scotland is a joke. Now, there's no level of accountability there. I don't actually think that the BBC correspondent was making that up. I do think the politician who sent it knew fine well that that would be repeated. It was going to be used in a particular way. But but cannot be held accountable for that. Is it, in a a previous life, um, you were... You were one of those BBC political correspondents. You were a lobby correspondent at uh, the Scottish Parliament and at Westminster. Is is this a particular issue for lobby correspondents? Or, you know, and, and are they trying to put, a, I don't know, a kind of patina of conspiracy where, where there may not be any? Is that what it's about? Uh, well, in, in fairness, I never, I never quite reached the heady levels of correspondent, but I worked in both areas. You, were, you worked in both parliaments. Like, like, but yeah. the, I think there's... There's a number of different things that uh, make this a, a particular danger, as it were. One is that the people who work in these environments uh, treasure their insider status, uh, and you know they, their job depends on them being or being seen to be connected. So, I mean, this is. It's a small issue, but this is part of why Jeremy, a small part of why Jeremy Corbyn got such a hard time because none of these people had him in speed dial. <laughs> there, was, there was nobody, there was nobody in Corbyn's team that they'd been taking to lunch for the last ten years. Part of their practice is to make their sources look important. And, and is it something? Are are you concerned as well as a? You know, I suppose a continuing journalist, but as a former journalist in 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 your previous life at the Beeb, um, are you concerned that it kind of begins? It, it's being used to undermine the reputation of journalism, in particular, lobby correspondents and lobby reporters. Uh, well, actually, I, I'd I'd be a lot happier if it were being used 
to and undermine would, oh, right. uh-huh. the reputation of local sports because I think their practices should change a very great deal. I think you would get a much you would get a more honest politics if you if political correspondents were were more transparent at, about their sources. What they said right. in the same way that other other journalists do, and if they actually reported on politics rather than repeating gossip. Okay, so that's uh, Stephen Lowe, and and as we mentioned there in the interview, he's a former political reporter, political researcher and stuff at uh, the BBC. Um, But, uh, Dave, do you think it is a a particular issue for political reporting, this anonymous sources? I do, simply because of the nature of the Westminster Village and political reporting. I remember reading something about, you know, reporting in Washington. It's like trying to be just... It was akin to, you know reporting a, a race horse from inside the, the horse and and I think in many ways reporting in the UK is a bit like that. You're mm. so entwined with your community and people are giving you lots and lots of gossip which is fine and you know the Sunday papers are full mm. of that but it does raise this issue of credibility and if, if your main line is from an anonymous source um, and, I, and I suspect you know with just wondering it might be worth looking at in the era of what certain people not myself call fake news um, are we doing ourselves a service by, or a disservice rather, mm, yeah. by, by quoting this? So it's just a thought. Yeah. No, let, let's come back to that because, you know, mm. Stephen did mention all of that there. So we, we, will, we will return to this almost certainly and hopefully get some uh, some more people around the table and we can we can have a, a big, long, wider discussion about it. So um, just uh, I can see the finish line uh, coming up. Uh, we'll wrap up with the usual um, quick gallop through what our students can, can expect in the law lectures this week. Um, Jess, what have you got? Yeah, I think going forward with level fives, I think we're going to be uh, second year students. We're going to be looking at contempt of court in the coming weeks. So yep. third years will be uh, introduced to the delights of the Data Protection Act and FOIs. Yep, and for for my postgrads, we'll be preparing them for their their actual visit to magistrates court in a couple of weeks' time, and uh, I'll be going through some of the procedures there. So uh, so that's it from Bank to Rights for this week. Uh, we'll be back next week with more from the MMU Journalism Department. Remember, we're on SoundCloud now on the SoundCloud feed attached to our northern quota news website and so for all of these uh, podcasts just search on soundcloud for mmu northern quota it's all one word mmu northern quota you'll also find us on stitcher and apple Podcasts now so search for bang to rights please subscribe to the podcast and also give us a rating because it helps others find us and helps spread the word you can also tweet at us on uh, at rights bang that's at rights bang Uh, and so um, we hope to hear from you thanks uh, thanks to dave thanks pete thanks jeremy Thanks, Pete. And uh, thanks to you for for listening. Uh, Let us know if there are topics or issues from the lectures or from your reading which you want us to cover in future editions. In the meantime, thanks very much. We'll speak to you soon.